If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The Toronto Maple Leafs win one. Wake me when they make it to four in a row. Here's Scott Thompson. Although I, I do understand what the boy is saying. Okay, here's my take now. Um, uh, this could be one of two things. Either uh, the Leafs are going to win a game or two here and there and drag this out and then lose it in the end, and we'll have lost all this time. <laughs> or they're going to win the next, uh, they're going to win four in a row, the next three, four in a row. And if they win four in a row, they're going to win the Stanley Cup. Huh? Huh? That's my prediction. You think? What do you think? Wait, there's, that's my prediction. I, I, I honestly believe that if they can do this, Good chance. Good chance they could go all the way, but I'm not really expecting that. All right, there you go. Uh, playing the Bob Marley today, Big Ben Strawn is. Reason being, uh, Bob Marley passed away on this day in 1981 at uh, age 36. Uh, and, of course, uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, but a malignant um, melanoma under his under his toenail. And then his health deteriorated very, very quickly as the cancer spread through his body. And, um, yeah, we lost him on this day back in 1981. And, of course, uh, Bob Marley's in The Wailers, uh, Exodus, one of the greatest selling albums of all time, uh, and and more than 20 million copies. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So there you go. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, the theme song for the island, Mon. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Ben is always looking for your last word. If you've got one in you, love to hear from you. You can talk, you can text, you can join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Your chance to win uh, some cool stuff from the pet barn. Well, that 50 bucks, there you go. Um, pet food, there you go. You know, at the end of the day, it costs as much to feed the pets as it does to the kids. So you're thinking, eh, one's got to go. Sorry, Junior. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, anyway, join us after the 5 o'clock news for that. We would love to uh, to give you something uh, to give to your pet uh, coming up after the 5 o'clock news. All right. Uh, the big story today and another, uh, of course, over and above the Leafs winning. Uh, but uh, more, more, more tragedy in uh, Canada, in Ontario, uh, specifically as yet another OPP officer uh, has uh, lost his life. This in a small town about 50K east of Ottawa. Sergeant Eric Mueller uh, has lost his life, age 42. Two others were injured uh, in this, what, what police are just calling an ambush. I mean, and, and, you know, we've seen certainly this before where the officers certainly don't even have time to respond, which uh, obviously explains the tragedy that we're dealing with uh, here today. Uh, three officers ambushed. Uh, one was released. The other is still in hospital and they have a 39 year old in custody 
so there you go. Uh, since September, 10 officers have lost their lives in the line of duty. Nine have been, nine have been murdered. Um, and five in Ontario, uh, just alone. So let that sink in. Cause remember, and I remember reporting on all of this back in September and talking about it and thinking, you know, cause it's such an anomaly for a, a Canadian police officer to lose their life in, in, in a line of duty. And here we have 10 in the line of duty, nine pretty much just murdered, just ambushed or taken out in some way, five of those uh, in Ontario. So I don't know. Uh, we certainly know there's uh, a lot of disgruntled and angry people, uh, but this has seeming, seemingly gone to a whole different level. And um, you've got to ask yourself why. Here's some clips from police at the news conference a little earlier today. Based on the information that I have, when three officers arrive on scene and within minutes are shot, one is killed, another is very seriously and critically injured, and another injured to the point of requiring medical attention for simply arriving on scene, I categorize that as an ambush. Eric was an exemplary officer, a family man. He started his career with the Ontario Provincial Police 21 years ago as a special constable in our offender transport unit right here in Ottawa. In 2006, he was hired as a provincial constable. And in 2018, in recognition of his exemplary performance, his dedication to duty, his commitment to his colleagues, he was promoted to the rank of sergeant. The one officer in hospital is approximately 43 years of age, 19 years of service, uh, exemplary officer who is highly regarded by his colleagues and community. The other officer who was treated and released from hospitals, 35 years of age, again, a 10-year veteran officer, an exemplary officer, also highly regarded by his colleagues and his community. Uh, OPP Commissioner Thomas Carrick there, a uh, news conference a little earlier on today talking uh, about the tragic shooting. Ambush is is what they're calling it of Sergeant uh, Eric Mueller. Uh, two others, other officers injured in that. One has been released. The other is still in hospital. A 39-year-old is in custody. And again, here's the really staggering part of all of this is since September, 10 officers have been killed in the line of duty. Nine have been ambushed, murdered, whatever you want to call it, and uh, five of those in Ontario. So, my goodness, when you process that, you have to wonder, uh, if we keep kicking the police like this, who's going to want to be one? Who's going to want to help keep law and order? Who's going to want to serve and protect? Who's going to want to do any of that? Um, it's just, it, it's horrific. And... Um, Somebody has to step up and get control of the country. This was fascinating and buzzed around the newsroom uh, this week. Brock University researcher Renata Roma's paper, My Perfect Dog, Undesired Dog Behaviors and Owners, <laughs> Coping Styles, looks at how the relationship between dogs and their owners ultimately affected the behavior of the humans as well as their well-being and quality of life. And certainly during the pandemic, anyone that has a pet re uh, realizes that. To talk more about all of this, Renata Roma's with us, researcher. Child and Youth Studies, Brock University, and with us now, Renata, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. How are you? And thank you for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. 
Are you surprised that uh, the response that you've got from this and in, in, in people reacting? Uh, in parts, yes, but I think that people like to discuss things related to dogs. So maybe that's why this paper has been receiving such a good um, attention. And I also think that people miss more information about how to handle difficult behaviors in their dogs. So uh, I think that this partially explains why like some people have been interested in learning more about this paper. So um, tell us the objective here. What were you trying to do? Well, um, I had actually three studies and this was the third one in my dissertation for my PhD. Oh, I'm sorry. to do, like in my first two studies, I looked at some positive aspects of dog ownership, but I didn't want to look only at the positive aspects. I wanted to focus on uh, how people handle difficult situations with their dogs too, because when I think about relationships with dogs, I think of as uh, complex relationships as we have with people. And we, we think about relationships with people, we will have some ups and downs. So I wanted to know what people do, how they feel, what types of strategies they use when they are handling challenging dog behaviors like barking or uh, not doing things that people expect dogs to do. Because we know that this happens when we have a dog. They can be amazing, but sometimes they also can do things that may be challenging for some people, particularly for young people. So I focused on how young people handle such difficult situations with their dogs. This was the main focus of my paper. And what did your research tell you? What surprised you about this? What surprised me? What surprised me first was that young people handle well many difficult situations with their dogs and seems like they prefer a more proactive coping style. And I think this is something very positive about the relationship between people and dogs, at least with the people that I interviewed. And um, yeah. Uh, because when we, we think about young dog owners, we may expect that because they don't have a lot of experience, maybe it would be more difficult for them to handle such situations. And that's not what I found. Uh, this surprised me. I had other findings, but they not necessarily surprised me. Like, for example, I found that people find very important to have a physical connection with their dogs, and that mm-hmm. just helps them to create mm-hmm. an emotional bond. This was another key finding. I wouldn't say that just surprised me, but I think it's an important finding that I had in this study. Uh, getting back to what surprised you, why do you think the difference between young people and how they have these relationships? The difference between what? Sorry? Uh, you were talking about you were surprised how young people reacted. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, I well, I have some hypotheses for that. I, I can't say for sure because this is not something that I explored, but maybe because some of them are more open to new um, strategies. Some of them were working with trainers. Some of the people that I interviewed were open to ask help from others when they started facing difficult situations with their dogs. So maybe this uh, mindset, like I'm facing something difficult here, but I'm not going to try just to handle this by myself. I will try to 
ask for help from others, I think this helped them to solve the situation in a positive way. Uh, talk a little bit about the global pandemic and how COVID-19 changed all of this, because we remember during the height of it, everybody was looking for a pet. Unfortunately, we've seen lots uh, give them up. But talk about that bond during the pandemic. Well, my study actually happened happened during the pandemic. So some of my findings can be related to this time. We know that during the pandemic, many people were adopting pets. We had a uh, increase in adoption and purchase of dogs, not only dogs, but different types of pets. And I think people had this expectation that maybe because they were lacking uh, connections with others, that maybe having a dog could help them to uh, to um, to have this physical connection, even this physical connection, because during the pandemic, we were being asked to not be close to others. And with a dog, we didn't have this type of restrictions, right? So I think this increased in people this desire to have a pet, to take care of them. We know that after the pandemic, some people didn't keep their dogs, but some studies also show that other people learned to care for a pet during the pandemic can actually created a bond with their pet. I don't know if everyone was read to have a pet, but as we know, like uh, purchasing or adopting a pet was something very popular during the pandemic. With us, Renata Roma, researcher, child and youth studies, Brock University, the relationship between you and your dog, what it says about both, I guess. Uh, Renata, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm not sure whether this is worth talking about or not talking about. I'm not sure it's uh, the actual changes, just the reason for them. Uh, in, in case you haven't noticed, we get uh, a new passport, and this usually happens every eight to ten years as they update security features and you know put little things on them that uh, that makes them uh, less chance of them being counterfeited or, or misused in any way, and and that's happened again. However, um, the government, when this happened, decided to make some of their own alternate uh, alterations and take away stuff you probably haven't even noticed, like uh, a picture of Terry Fox, Vimy. Ridge references, what have you, historic uh, stuff that happened in uh, has happened in Canada, and it seems we're in a mad dash to erase it all. Or if you're not, this is a hard case to prove we're not. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, uh, and is here now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on, Scott. So, Alyssa, I'm not the kind of guy that really gets bent out of shape about this sort of stuff. Progress is progress. Change is change. I'm all for that sort of stuff. Uh, But it seemed a while ago, we, you know, Viola Desmond, we were interested in putting these new modern and and updated heroes onto our currency or passports or whatever. And now we're just erasing everything. And and, and again, who cares? Well, I guess we do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. But to me, the issue is here's a chance 
for this liberal government, this federal government, to look good, uh, especially when their pants are down when it comes to security and, and interference and, and Chinese Communist Party allegations uh, against them and such. This is a perfect time to say, we've got your backs here. We've updated the passport, and they're more secure than ever. And instead, you know, they start changing all the images. It seems it went from a win-win to a win-lose. What are your thoughts? You know, this is really an odd story, Scott, and why it continues to be a story, I don't know. Maybe it's a slow news day, but I did a small uh, uh, survey of people, and I said, you know, the new passports, they took away all these images, the last spike, Terry Fox, etc., and they've changed it to for this and this. And everybody looked at me and said, I had no idea that those images were on my passport. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I mean, is this much ado about nothing? I don't know. I mean, I understand the notion of getting upset around erasing history. But you know, now that I think about my passport, I guess that these images were on those inside pages where they stamp. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not even sure where the images are. I'd have to run home and dig out my passport to take a look to see where the images are. And every time you change something, you know, there is a section of people, about 10% of the, the audience is going to go get up in arms and get really, really mad about it. But at the end of the day, when they're fishing for their passport and standing in line and having some customs official take a look at it, the last thing on their minds is, oh, my gosh, this person is not going to see a picture of the last spike. Let me ask you this, Alyssa. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead, Scott. If it isn't on their minds, and I agree 100% with you, why the hell is it on the mind of the federal government? Why can't they just make the security changes and leave it, as opposed to having to pee on everything? Uh, You know, I understand, and I saw this uh, pundit do this the other day, saying, why are we so so focused on this? Why does it matter? Well, why did it matter enough to change it to a squirrel gathering is nuts? Why... And I agree 100%, but the same thing applies for the methodology around changing it. Why do it? Why spend our time and our energy doing this? You want to add more context. You want to add more history. You want to modernize things. That's great. But why did you spend so much time trying to just leave your mark? So, you know, everybody can say, well, you know, why are you getting so upset about it? Well, why why did you think it was so so important to do it. I think in general, anytime somebody, whether they're in the government or private organization or not-for-profit, gets their mitts on the ability to change or update design, you know, everybody goes hog wild. Nobody ever does a little bit of it, Scott. They always do a lot of it. Why? Because people get excited about new things and and looking at creative and participating in creative, even though they don't have a creative bone in their body. I've seen it time and time again over my career that when it comes time to, you know, change up or refresh our logo, everybody has an opinion. So sometimes these things in the back room, Scott, what happens that, you know, when you only want to do, a, you know, you know, a little and always the scope always expands to and expands and expands and expands as more hands get into the pie. And a lot of this is sort of committee driven. A lot of this is depending who's higher on the totem pole driven. And then at one point they all think, well, we're doing it anyways. So let's just do it all. 
So it's just not with passports. It's with creative all the time. And yep. whether these people have cre- a creative bone in their body, whether they even have the experience. So the people who actually do have the experience d- doing the design, at the end of the day, they're just taking orders. And I can tell you, that's what happened here. Uh, so is this what could have been a win-win? And now it's just like, oh, man, here we are focused And again, it's not just the media, it's the government focused on crap that doesn't matter or trying to influence in ways that only irritate as opposed to moving the game forward. I don't think it's that at all. I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's a moment to change the channel for about 24 hours from all the bad the bad <laughs> stuff that they're dealing with right now, including, you know, Chinese interference, etc. Every now and then, any government, any organization, when they're experiencing a bad spate of publicity, they always get, get into a room and they say, what do we need to do? How can we change the channel? Oh, Here's a passport. It has a new design. Let's go. So, you know, for at least a 24 hour news cycle, everybody is talking about either lauding or complaining about the passport. So does the government really care at this point? You know what people are saying, whether they like it or they don't like it. Listen, it's a fait accompli. And the other way it's a fait accompli is that you and I are talking about this and not any special commissions looking at Chinese (laughs) interference. Oh, don't worry. That's coming up, Alyssa. Um, (laughs) So um, uh, it just seems that... Again, a win was you know something where they could you know where everybody's questioning their security. Their uh, uh, yeah, but that was solved though, Scott. I mean, the thing that you don't like about it is that they, they sort of you know maybe took away race history to put their own stamp on it. I think the security there's two wins out of this, and I'm not pro government on this at all. I'm just no, like, I hear you. Tell me as I see it. There's two wins. A that there's enhanced security features, and B if you want to renew, you can do it online. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you right now, that's the public, you know, uh, takeaway. Maybe some people, a small proportion of people are going to sit there and dig into, you know, what what type of creative stamp did the liberals think they were going to do to the passport? Is anybody going to remember 10 years from now when they're getting their 10-year passport? Are they going to remember that, oh, gee, it was the liberal government that changed this design? No. Uh, All they're going to remember is, oh, I need to renew it. I can do it online. And... You can see from a mile away this uh, maple leaf and the word Canada emblazoned on it. You can see a mile away from you know what this passport is. And as any experienced traveler knows, whether you've been backpacking it or not, that you know one of the ways and always to you know uh, enhance favor of you as a tourist is to mention that you're Canadian. We put those flags on our backpacks. We put them on our lug and luggage tags. So, <laughs> in a way of identifying yourself as belonging to Canada, if that's something you're proud of, then you know the cover of the of, of the passport does do the job. I just don't really see how it should be such a focus for all of us, including the government, to make this change and create it. But as you said, it's another distraction. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Always fabulous to have you. Thanks so much. Be well. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Maple Leafs saved their necks last night, and, and, and they're dragging this out. Is it good or is it bad? Are they just prolonging and going to win a couple and then, oh, then lose it all? Are they going to win four in a row? 
and go off and take the Stanley Cup? Because I think that's really what the options are here. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, I'm sure uh, we could sit here and talk cliches and what happened, what didn't happen in the past and such. Why the win last night? What was different? Uh, they were due. Um, they, they they have something in store, like the writers for, for Ted Lasso, to surprise us down the stretch. and Or it could be like the writers for Barry and find a way to rip your heart out from your chest and <laughs> show it to you while it's still beating before you die as a way that they lose the series and eliminate themselves <laughs> for yet another spring. Uh, obviously a much rougher game, but certainly not like the Edmonton-Vegas game. Uh, but are we seeing this team uh, get to a different level when it comes to physicality, or is that a once in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a series thing? Because it seems even if they do move on, man, they're going to have to have a, lot, a little bit more grit. Well, I mean, I don't know if grit's their game, right? They, they've added no, some grit. No. Certainly Luke Shen. Um, you know, there are people who can play whatever that gritty game is. But at the core of it is, you know, what we've been hearing a lot about over the last couple of days, the core, the core four. Um, that's what this team is built around. This team isn't this team isn't built to play in the old Norris division with the Chicago and Toronto and Detroit, yeah. each winning 30 games and getting into the playoffs somehow. No, this is. This is a team that has, you know, forty million dollars invested in four very key players. And if those players do not perform, this team isn't going to win no matter how much grit it might put on the ice or might not put on the ice. It's it is strictly and solely on the shoulders of Austin Matthews, of Mitch Marner, of uh, William Nylander and John Tavares. And you know, Morgan Riley is in that conversation. And, you know, other players, it is a team game after all. But, yeah, it's on the shoulders of those four players. And that is rightly where all the attention is going to be paid for however much longer this may or may not go. So what was different for them? Or is it just, hey, the last game of your season or, or you're out? Like, what do you you win or you go home? Was, I mean, it's that or golf. Different, what was different was they ended up scoring more goals than the opposition for the first time in this series. Because, yeah. I mean, really what it was was, yeah, they've had the lead before, right? They they had the lead. I think it was two nothing at home. They had a, they scored first again. They might have I have to check, but I think they scored first in all three of the games preceding last night. And then for whatever reason, be it mental lapses, brain farts, whichever one you want to call it, um, end up sort of tripping over their own faces and losing. And part of that is obviously because Florida, um, they have some talented players. They have a veteran, wily, savvy coach in Paul Maurice. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has been. You know, the team itself building a lead and then not being able to hold on to it, whether it be simple mistakes or, you know, certainly in in that first game in Florida in game three, again, that core four that we're talking about being held off the score sheet. So, yeah, I mean, what was different last night? They held on. Um, You know, Mm. again, they got they got some production from Mitch Marner, a member of that core four. um, And it was just just barely enough to get them to game five. Can they can they make this four in a row? Uh, what is your what is your editor side say versus your fan side? Uh, to be clear, I, I am not a Leaf fan, so maybe that's a full disclosure. Never was, never have been. Um, however, well, that means you're all that means is you're some uh, somewhat objective here. That's all right. I don't I don't know if you can grow up in Southern Ontario and ever have an objective, truly objective opinion about the Leafs. I mean, yeah. we've all been around long enough to know that you know 1967 was the last appearance in a Stanley Cup final, let alone losing it. And certainly within the last 20 years or so, they've 
they've really evolved into a, a really skillful set of tormentors for their fans. So hmm. you ask me within that context, uh, within the context of a fan uh, of a franchise that has lost a game to a Zamboni driver and the opposing goal that has had waffles showered on them on the ice that has lost a 4-1 <laughs> lead in game seven against Boston in 2013, I would suggest to you that they might well find a way to get to game seven in overtime and somehow score on their own net to lose. Like it will find maybe a new and inventive way of getting there and just breaking the hearts of their fans because statistically nobody comes back from three, nothing down. Um, you know, if they win a game or two, that would do well, I think to sort of, um, certainly quiet some of the people baying for changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, statistically speaking, the series, the series is all over, but the, uh, the hand wringing. And like a horror flick, um, the fans have to watch till the very end. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald with us, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic on the Maple Leafs' victory last night. Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. As you've heard in the news, Margaret Jurovinsky has passed away at the age of 91. Her and husband Charles uh, donating millions, over over $68 million, whether it's healthcare, McMaster University, over the years, former owners of Flamborough Downs, and um, and the two have left quite a legacy in the city. Let's bring in Fred Eisenberger, former mayor for the city of Hamilton, and with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well on this sad day for Hamilton. Uh, it is a lovely day, but a sad day. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, uh, Margaret was one of my favorite ladies in the city of Hamilton, and uh, you know, she was uh, she was just a wonderful person. And uh, obviously, you, you spoke of their generosity, and certainly, she was the uh, the social conscience of the Jurovinsky team for sure. Uh, what do you remember most? You said one of your favorite people. Why? Well, you know, she was so, so pleasantly down to earth. And whenever we went to an event uh, and sat at the table together, uh, you could count on Margaret uh, letting you know how down to earth she was because she could string together, uh, you know, a, 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 a lacing of uh, profanity like no one I knew. Not, not loudly, <laughs> but just privately. Uh, you know, a North Ender, a classic, uh, you know, North Ender. They didn't put on airs, Charles or Margaret, quite frankly. Uh, they had, you know, many, many millions of dollars, but uh, you would never have known it if you didn't know them and uh, you knew all of their background. They were, uh, you know, supremely down to earth. And if Margaret didn't like something, uh, she would let you know. And, uh, and conversely, if she did like something, she'd also let you know. So she was just... Uh, you know, there there used to be, you know, it doesn't happen much anymore, but, uh, you know, ladies or some women were, were characterized as a, a great broad. Uh, she was a great broad. You know, not not, mm. not ladylike and certainly not a, a biatch, uh, but someone that uh, would tell her exactly what she was thinking, very smart, very bright, and very caring for her community. Uh, I was lucky enough to interview Charles a couple of times, and he was always a character, and they'd say that she was more mild than the two. Talk about the two and how the two worked together. Well, they were, they were clearly they were a team, and I think, uh, you know, without Margaret, I don't think Charles would have had the, the kind of social conscience that he did. He was very much a businessman, and he was very much interested in, uh, in making money, and he did that uh, quite successfully. Uh, but uh, I think Margaret brought to them uh, a, a, a social conscience, a kind of compassion and caring for a community that they uh, they demonstrated, uh, you know, over and over again. And just recently, uh, you know, with a five million dollar donation to uh, to healthcare, uh, Margaret's mm. place, uh, you know, healthcare in general, uh, they they really tried to maximize 
the uh, the benefit to individual people in our community, not businesses, not necessarily government, but individuals. And through healthcare, they managed to do that. And Margaret, I think, was the one that brought that social conscience to the Jurovinsky team. Uh, you know, uh, Margaret was never one to take the stage. Uh, she always left that for Charles, and you know, mm-hmm. she wasn't one to do speeches or or make comments on anything, but uh, on, a, on a private basis, she would let you know exactly what she was thinking, and she really was the strength behind the two of them that uh, that made that partnership so great. I have to ask, did she get, ever give you advice on how to run the city? No, never. Uh, you know what, she would, she would, and I never asked, to be honest. Uh, mm. uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't part of her mindset. She wasn't right. about to tell anybody what they needed to do and how to do it. She had, they know what they needed to do and what they wanted to do, and they set about doing it uh, very effectively. Uh, they uh, they managed to uh, to you know boost healthcare in Hamilton in very very significant ways, and the legacy for that will uh, will continue for a long long time. But she was never never preachy about what she thought Hamilton mm-hmm. ought to be. She never complained about where Hamilton was. Uh, always a great supporter of whoever was in leadership to uh, let them know that uh, you know they were behind them, and uh, and they had their support, and so uh, they were always supportive and never critical. Think of all of the changes, the progress they've seen in Hamilton over the years. The, you know the ups and the downs. Yeah, can you imagine anybody that uh, that's had that kind of lifespan? Uh, you know, ninety mm. ninety plus years uh, has seen massive amounts of change in our community. And, you know, going back to. Depression days and, uh, you know, World War II and, uh, you know, the Cold War. I mean, that that whole generation saw a lot of uh, difficulty and also a lot of uh, progress and positive change. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, Margaret and Charles uh, were part, a very significant part of that. Uh, they, uh, they ran a number of operations that were uh, are continuing to contribute to the lifeblood of our community by virtue of the uh, the stipend that comes from Flamborough Downs and the uh, casino on an ongoing mm. basis on an annualized basis. So their giving through that process continues, and their endowment uh, in health sciences will continue to provide you know positive health care in in Hamilton that otherwise would not have had that kind of a boost. So uh, their legacy, you know, based based on the, the, the curve of their life, they have seen massive, massive changes, and they've certainly been part of massive changes on their own by virtue of their their largesse and their uh, philanthropy. Remembering Margaret Jurovinsky with former mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger. Fred, as always, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for sharing your stories. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting uh, a chatter from Vic Fideli uh, this, uh, today, uh, Ontario Economic Development Minister Vic T- uh, Fideli, uh, not really making an announcement, but talking and certainly trying to drum up interest in what he called a sleeper story of the province's massive auto industry transition now that the quest to establish end-to-end electric vehicle production in Ontario has landed two battery plants, not to mention... Uh, the assembly plants are now setting their sights on lithium hydro- uh, hydroxide, a critical component of those batteries. He says there are two or three very good prospects for bringing uh, lithium facility to the province with particular eye on, North on uh, northern Ontario, Fideli said in an interview. To talk more about all of this, what it means, how do you decode it, let's bring in Marvin Ryder to Group School of Business, McMaster University, and with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm, I'm well and glad to be with you. So kind of surprising the economic development minister talking about this when he's still in the prospecting stage. What do you think he means by prospects? How close do we are to a, a, a story here? Well, uh, if you don't mind, can I just go slightly a different direction and then I'll come back? You know, I, I think it's interesting that he's saying we need to make the raw material that they use to make batteries because, for instance, he could also argue, why aren't we making the tires for the cars or the seats for the cars or the, the blinker systems, what have you? There are lots of things that go into making an electric vehicle which are not made here in Ontario and which are imported and then assembled here in Ontario. So I'm not quite clear why, of all the things that he could focus on, he's decided to focus on lithium hydroxide. Now, there's a significant problem with this, is that we don't really have, at this moment, an active lithium mine in Ontario. In other words, I take lithium ore extracted from the earth, I then process it to turn it into lithium hydroxide. Now, could we create a facility here? Absolutely, but then we'd have to import the lithium ore. A lithium ore today is mined in Quebec. Frankly, if I was a car manufacturer, I think I'd like to have the uh, refinement of the lithium ore into lithium hydroxide closer to where I mine it, so I could see Quebec saying this. Now, again, having to be fair to Vic, uh, there is the possibility, possibility of lithium deposits in northern Ontario. And when we say northern Ontario, we mean really northern Ontario, like 500 miles north of Thunder Bay. This is that area they call the Ring of Fire. We know there are other minerals there that can be used in making batteries, like manganese, like nickel. Uh, those sorts of things are there. And there is belief that there might be lithium that could be mined there too. My only concern, again, is when he puts a time limit on this and says he wants to make this happen over the next year, wow, you know, if, if we don't have an active mine to get a mine open, I just don't think a year is possible. Frankly, normally it would be lucky to get something like that open in 10 years. We've talked about the ring of fire for at least two decades, and we still haven't had much development done. So I applaud his initiative and his idea. I just don't know how practical it is. Uh, do we have a lot of active mines? Um, because we keep hearing about uh, how how Canada, Ontario has minerals that are needed. We want to end to end production of EVs and yeah, and such. But as you've talked about the Ring of Fire, it's from what I'm hearing, it's still years away from development. Um, what is what is our mining? What are our mining institutions up to? Are they up to this task? And do we have enough mining facility uh, to to, to to get to some of these goals. Right. So if you don't mind, again, I got to split that into two parts. We do have active mining here in Ontario. And uh, for instance, we, we mine cobalt, we mine silver, we mine gold, we mine nickel. Uh, we So we do have active mines. And some of those things, like nickel, can be used in the manufacture of, of EV batteries or batteries in general. What we don't have is we don't have a lithium mine. And we don't have an active mine of any kind in that ring of fire area. Samples have been taken, uh, you know, drill core samples down into the ground, and they all test positive for some of these great minerals. But it's a very inaccessible area, meaning that the very first thing we need to do, and Doug Ford has pledged to do this, which is to build a road to the area just to get equipment in so that we could do something like this. So we have active mines. The problem is the mines that are active don't produce the minerals that we need to make batteries. 
if we're going to uh, uh, get the supply chain where we do the backward part, there's two things. Are we just going to refine somebody else's ore or are we going to try to create our own? And I just don't see where you can do that in a year's time. Um, are we, is our mining industry about to take off or again, is it like the harvesting of, of fossil fuels? It's impossible with regulations to even get these things built because it sounds like we're promising a lot, but as you said, um, I, I don't know how we're going to deliver this. Right. So again, where it is today, where it might be tomorrow today. Yeah. We have mines that are active, but they have been active for years and years and years. We don't have a lot of new mines that open. And you're correctly saying that the environmental assessments, the permitting process can truly take years and years and years, if not a decade or more. So historically people looking to open mines have not looked to Ontario. Now Vic today floated this wonderful trial balloon basically saying, look, Ontario is open for business. We're going to cut red tape and we're going to be your new best buddy. Now, if I'm in that business, I would say, oh, that's an interesting change of tune from Ontario. Uh, I might very well come by and kick the tires and see how serious he is. But it would mean a sea change in the way the government of Ontario does things. And I just don't know if the rubber is going to hit the road here, if they're really going to walk the talk, as they say, uh, Vic could be telling you something that's true, and there might be people who take them up on it, but they're going to want to see action fast if you say you're open for business. If you immediately start throwing up the roadblocks, they're going to go elsewhere. Is this up to Ontario, or is uh, how much do the feds control? Um, if, generally speaking, on the environmental issues, it is a provincial authority. The feds have a have an interest in oil because uh, of our commitments around carbon and being greener and those sorts of things. But otherwise, these sorts of things are up to individual provinces. I could certainly imagine a lithium mine in Saskatchewan. I can see a lithium mine active in Quebec, and that might be fine. You know, uh, we'll we'll mine the ore there, put it in train cars, bring it to Ontario. We'll do the final refining the lithium hydroxide. I, I just don't know how the producers in the industry feel, or would they rather see the refinement of the ore closer to where it's mined in the ground? Thus, to me, to me, given my background in business, it makes more sense that that kind of production would happen closer to where it's mined. But uh, you would need to see these experts. And again, if you are prepared, for instance, to subsidize the process or waive some taxes or something else, you could even the playing ground and move those jobs here. So it would be a very interesting challenge, I think, what what Vic has said, uh, when the people come calling, is he prepared to do what he has to do to make it happen? Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, Vic Fideli, economic development minister, saying the sleeper story of the province is the massive auto industry transition. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. And as we mentioned earlier on, uh, sad news, Margaret Jurovinsky has passed away at the age of 91. Her and husband Charles donating well over $68 million uh, to various uh, health care facilities and, and McMaster University over the years. And uh, quite the pair. 
to say the least. Let's bring in Ron Foxcroft, Fox 40 World, creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, author of 40 Ways of the Fox, CEO of Fluke, uh, Fluke Transport, also NBA official, and with us now. Ron, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Uh, it's a pleasure, uh, Scott, on a, on a day that uh, is, is very sad. Margaret wouldn't want us to be sad, but Scott, hmm. I, have, I go back to Margaret and Charles over 50 years. Uh, when they owned Wilchar Construction in Dundas, oh, Ontario, this was prior to the racetrack. Yeah. And I remember that 50 years ago saying to Charles, and, and you know, I never saw them apart. They were always together, a true hmm. partnership. The only time I ever saw them apart was a few months ago as Charles had passed away and I was at an event uh, at, at McMaster Health Sciences with Margaret. It was the first time I'd ever seen her without Charles in over mm-hmm. 50 years. And, and you know uh, what made me sad that day? She looked sad. She mm-hmm. clearly was missing Charles. But going mm-hmm. back 50 years ago, I remember them being together and um, saying to uh, Charles, of course, with Margaret there, you know, behind every smart man is a mar- much smarter woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and because Margaret, um, you know, she possessed common sense, which always wasn't so common. And, <laughs> and a lady of, uh, a very wise lady, a lady of few words, but her words were very impactful. And, um, you know, St. Joe's Hospital, I got to know them really well uh, within the last 10 years because I co-chaired the uh, St. Joe's Hospital Capital Campaign at the West 5th Campus with Sarah Felice Arminio. So we got to know Margaret very, very well. And, and you know, uh, Scott, St. Joe's describes Mar- Margaret as a uh, formidable woman. And I knew Margaret as not only formidable, but courageous, generous, wise, dedicated, caring, and very impactful, very impactful. But it was sad a few months ago, Scott, to see Margaret uh, Hmm. without Charles. And as I said, first time I'd ever seen them not together in 50 years. Mayor Fred, we had him on a bit earlier, and former Mayor Fred Eisenberger was saying that she could hold her own, could be quite a colorful lady. She would tell you what's on her mind. Oh, there's no question. There's, uh, I heard Fred say that, and how accurate that was. Um, Margaret always had the right choice of words, and some of them not for a uh, family show, like the Scott Thompson show. And, and she, you know, the other thing, she had that little cheeky sense of humor. Because uh, when um, Charles got inducted, and this, she was so proud when Charles got inducted into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame for the amazing work that both of them did for the horse racing industry. And and she had that mm. cheeky uh, sense of humor, and we were at the induction, and she turned to me and you said, you tell Charles to keep that speech short, you know, because every <laughs> once in a while he tends to be a windbag. Well, she was doing that uh, tongue-in-cheek with this yeah. great sense of humor. But as I said, she had that cheeky sense of humor. She had common sense. But I'll tell you, 
she was very smart. She was very wise. And to to have that common sense. The other thing, Scott, that's important, her legacy will Mm. live forever. Their generosity is shown everywhere across this city with health care. And, you know, Margaret would always say to everybody, including Charles, health is wealth. And you you never knew that they were wealthy. They were just like everybody else. They Hmm. they just blended in. They loved their community. They were loyal to their community. They really loved Hamilton because, you know, they came here from Saskatchewan 50, 60, 70 years ago and started wheelchair construction and then the racetrack. And but I'll tell you, Charles gave Margaret a lot of credit for his business success at Wilchar, at the racetrack, uh, his, her social conscience for their giving to health care. And uh, I, I am so thrilled that their generosity and their giving legacy will allow us to never forget Margaret and Charles Jarovinsky. Ron Foxcroft with us, uh, celebrating the life of Margaret Jurovinsky, who has passed away, and of course her and husband Charles, leaving a huge legacy in the city of Hamilton. Ron, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure always. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly been uh, talking a lot about MP Chong and the interference in his life, targeting his family, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, election interference, all that old, all that stuff. Um, and, and then, of course, when we expel a diplomat, the backlash, the retaliation. We can't do that. Uh, we'll lose trade. But an interesting article in the Star today, a dangerous exercise. China has too much to lose to launch an all-out trade war with Canada, says experts, and you have to wonder, does this relationship not hurt and 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 benefit both? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. It's good to hear from you, Scott. Charles, um, obviously a lot of people concerned about retaliation, but in articles today we're forgetting the beef industry has been under retaliation for a year and a half. When are we not being retaliated or threatened uh, by China? This is an ongoing process. Why are we worried about futures? Well, I mean, I, I certainly don't think that we should consider this economic factor if China's engaged in trying to interfere in our, dem, you know, democratic process by pressuring the family of an MP to try and affect his vote or what what proposals he brings in Parliament. I mean, that that really transcends the idea of whether the Chinese will cancel this or that trade agreement. I mean, our external commodity trade to China is only about 4% of Canada's total. And, you know, if you look at like economics 101, if China decides, okay, we're not going to take the Canadian soybeans, we'll make up some story that they're they're full of bugs and rusts and whatever, we're not going to buy them. So they don't buy our soybeans. Our soybeans increase in inventory. We sell them on the global market at a lower price. That becomes attractive to other markets who then, you know, we now have a new customer for soybeans and it's not China. So we've achieved the goal of diversifying our economic uh, dependence away from China. 
you know, most of what we sell to China are agricultural commodities and minerals for which there is a global market. So, you know, it's going to be disruptive, but ultimately, um, you know, the if they buy more Brazilian soybeans, the Brazilian soybeans price goes up. Um, and our, our soybean price goes down and in the end everything shakes out and China is the loser. So, you know, I, I'm not too, uh, I'm not too convinced by this argument that we ought to let them run wild and harass and menace people and engage in espionage and everything else just because, uh, you know, we, we don't want to lose market share in that big market. We often hear we're so small, they're so big, they don't care about us. Um, you know, we do something and won't even make a dent on them. They do it, it, it will cripple us. What do they have to lose in all of this? Well, I mean, you know, uh, certainly we are a small uh, global player. Um, we do import quite a lot of Chinese products, but, you know, there are other sources for these things. And so, uh, you know, the idea that if we got into some kind of trade war with China, that it would be disastrous for Canada is not really a factor. And the Chinese economy is is pretty tightly balanced and it's not doing too well these days with, you know, government policies that work against the free market and also the lingering impact of that COVID uh, lockdown policy. And so they, they really can't afford to, to, uh, to, 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 to have economic disruption because that is pretty serious domestically in China. If people lose jobs in China, that really is, uh, you know, they don't eat kind of thing. Whereas here we have we have mechanisms and government subsidies that can, um, you know, not uh, relieve the shock. But I mean, ultimately, what we want is for China to get the message that if they play fair, then we will do trade with them and everybody wins. And if they engage in illegal and and horrible activities, you know, not just in terms of of trying to sanction us economically by spurious false reasons for violating trade contracts, but also the possibility that they could start harassing Canadian business people in China, you know, making up false allegations in court cases, not letting people leave the country, or even going to the extreme that they did with Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor about hostage diplomacy, you know, ultimately this stuff does not serve China's interests. And I think the Chinese people ought to understand that they need a government that, you know, believes in fairness and rep reciprocity, which is really the Chinese tradition. The Communist Party is not representing what China is yeah. really all about. Uh, we've heard a lot about uh, how China has become interwoven in Canadian life, whether it's elections, whether it's healthcare, whether industry, what have you, uh, specifically education. University of Waterloo announcing it's pulling back funding it receives from China. Your thoughts on this? Is this the beginning of a trend? Well, I mean, I can certainly sympathize with the university losing needed research funds. You know, the universities should be properly funded for this kind of uh, technological research, which you know is really serving Canada's future. But, you know, the bottom line is that Huawei, among other companies, um, pays a small amount of money with a hope to getting um, patents that, that they can apply in, Ch in China. I mean, you know, our universities are largely subsidized by you and me, the Ontario taxpayer mm -hmm. who pay the professor's salary and maintain the plant and the heating and so on, you know, and the, the support staff and the cleaners, they're all paid for by us. So, 
the Chinese can give a small amount of money and get a lot of benefits. I think I think it was in the last year, if I've remembered the statistic correctly, Huawei generated 110 patents out of Canada alone. Well, those patents, you know, once they get into the Chinese system, they don't just stay with Huawei. They're going to go to any military agency that can benefit yeah. from dual use technologies and ultimately could be used in, in a conf military confrontation, say, involving the U.S., which would mean NATO would be involved, which would mean Canada would be involved against us. So, you know, morally and ethically, it's wrong for us to be providing these technologies to a, a hostile power and i think the universities have a moral and ethical obligation to to serve canada's national security interests but that being said is i think that we should be providing them with some subsidies so the research can go on charles burton with a senior fellow with the center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute charles as always thanks for the time be well take care scott the House of Commons has unanimously agreed that a committee should strike a study into the intimidation campaign allegedly orchestrated by now-expelled Chinese diplomat against Conservative MP Michael Chong and his family. How many more committees do we meet? Do we need? Is this one going to reveal anything, uh, considering the chief of staff for the prime minister, uh, Katie Delford, testified earlier uh, that uh, everything that comes across her desk comes across his desk, yet there seems to be discrepancy of when or if he ever received information from CSIS and the National Security Advisor on this sort of information, which they say uh, the government did receive. Let's bring in Jean-Bierre Tellier, Professor of School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and with us now. Jean-Bierre, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much, Scott. So anything more to learn here through another committee? What will be revealed here? Oh, I like when uh, what you started when you say how many committees do we need, and so I yeah. think that's that's the challenge for the moment is that one more committee. Uh, I think we need one more committee, which is probably the committee that maybe David Johnson will propose. We'll see uh, next week. But another committee at the House of Common in the House of Common, uh, I think it will be as politicized as. The, the, the work has been until now and I'm not sure we will really learn things as you mentioned uh, with Katie Telford but other witnesses also is that we don't know too much they say that, that they, cannot, they cannot speak in public and so I'm not sure we're going to go to the heart of the matter with uh, another one Obviously, the prime minister came out the day that this uh, all broke from the Globe, uh, Globe and Mail and said he was hearing the first thing of this. Um, yet CSIS and the National Security Advisors say, no, they were sent the information. Uh, where's the breakdown here? And if this doesn't get pushed up the chain, what does? That being said, it sounds like it was pushed up the chain. Who, who do we believe here? Yes, exactly. Well, it's one word against the other. And so we don't know who to believe. And I cannot say I prefer to believe one over the other one. We don't have any, uh, we don't have any information to, 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 to pass judgment on, on that. Now, the thing is that with secrecy and secret services, it has always been difficult to know what's happening. Uh, and I think everybody agrees uh, that ordinary Canadian, meaning you and me and others, we don't necessarily need to know everything and all the specifics. But, uh, um, CISIS is accountable to whom? And I think that's something we should discuss a bit more uh, and more publicly. And sh who, 
to whom this should they report? Um, is it only the prime minister, his office, government? Should it be parliamentarian also? It's not clear. We really don't know. And so we have this blame game going on saying, well, I knew I didn't knew. And so we ha should have a procedure that is much clearer, have a clear process and, and hold to account everybody because as it is now, nobody answer question. And that is really, really a problem. And so, uh, as far as I am concerned for the moment, I would say everybody is to blame because we don't have any uh, satisfactory answers. Many are looking for answers from CSIS, which seems silly because they are a secretive agency. That is the whole idea, despite leaking information that they want to get through. Um, is the prime minister throwing CSIS under the bus this way by questioning this federal institution? Well, he is certainly throwing uh, the source, the informant that is contacting the Globe and Mail under the bus. That's for sure. And so uh, that's also an issue. Why is someone or many individuals feel the need to inform the Globe and Mail and to, to talk with the media? And so this has been going on for, for many weeks now, and I don't think it will stop. And so clearly somebody is not satisfied. Um, but where is the blame to be put on? So is it the prime minister? Is it ISIS? Um, we really don't know. So going back a bit to what I was saying before, probably the processes are not clear that much. And uh, who should say what, to whom, under which circumstances? It's not clear. And everybody seems to have a different opinion opinion on that. And maybe by having an inquiry about foreign interference, it would be clearer what are um, what are the weaknesses uh, and what's missing in, in that big picture. Uh, uh, but yes, uh, again, uh, we are in the front of a game, a blame game, which is not good for everyone. Uh, at the uh, end of the day, is this not something the prime minister can solve? I mean, uh, you know, he's saying that he's not getting information. Well, that confirms, doesn't it? Why CSIS is leaking it? Because he's not getting it. Or at least he yes. says he's not and, getting it. And on top it. of that, he and, and, wants and, to get the information because if he didn't want to have uh, uh, the information, he would have a special advisor in his office he wouldn't say to parliamentarian well i have the information that you and so at the same time he wants to be informed but that, uh, on the other hand he doesn't seem to pay that much attention uh, and yes that, that that's an issue for me uh, having sizes uh, contacting the office of the prime minister is up to a point an, an issue especially when it's about parliamentarian matters uh, i think that uh, parliamentarians should also be informed so the the prime minister is not above everything and so yes he should be informed on most thing uh, about intelligence that's that's for sure uh, but to, uh, well, that's the thing. We have too much power concentrated in the, the hand of a few, which the PMO, the, the Prime Minister Office, and and uh, and it's, yes, and its close advisor. And so maybe we should rethink that process and try to set up a clearer uh, uh, line of authority. Who should receive what under what circumstances? And maybe the answer is not all the time the Prime Minister. Isn't it a sad excuse that he's saying that though? Because ultimately that. 
all of that responsibility falls on him. Um, You know, if you know, if he if he wants the info, um, not only can you ask CSIS for it, but why don't open the door and ask your staff what they know instead of throwing CSIS or the informant under the bus? Why not find? Hey, they said they delivered it. Where did it go? Is he shaking down his staff to see where this uh, break is? Or is it convenient for him not to ask? I don't see. I don't know. Well, not to ask is a strategy that is the most preferred by any prime minister. So what I don't know, uh, you cannot blame me on that. Uh, but yes, maybe he should shake up his staff. Uh, I don't know if you recall the t- t- testimony of Cathy Telford. She she said often during the committee hearing that the prime minister was well informed and was aware of every briefing, read every document, yeah. and so his end ends on, on on the issue. And so we had that story a few weeks ago, and now this week it seems that he was not really that aware and uh, and uh, up to date. And so yes. Uh, there are some contradictions, and those contradictions don't don't uh, don't put a good uh, light on on the prime minister. It's not a good thing for the prime minister for sure. So um, he, he should take that more seriously. But you know what? Since Prime Minister Trudeau has been in power, managing crisis is not his strongest mm. <laughs> uh, suit. And so uh, again, we have a crisis, and we have a prime minister that uh, cannot decide quickly with assertion about um, the correct line of conduct. And that's where we are. Is the office being run without him? Uh, could it be run without him? Yes, I think so. <laughs> should it be run without him? No, uh, of course. Yeah. He should be uh, paying more attention. Of course, a prime minister have uh, files that he prefer over others. That's 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 normal. And so we don't expect him to know everything on every topic. But if he doesn't want to have a file on, uh, close to him, then he delegates it to somebody else that speaks on his behalf. And so who speaks on the behalf of Trudeau for the moment as far as as uh, foreign interference and intelligence is concerned, well, no one. So we have to think that he takes that matter seriously, but it doesn't show that well. Javier Tellier with us, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. It just gets deeper. Uh, Javier, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Always a sexy thing. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that about him. Maybe you can't say that anymore. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You sexy thang, you. Oh, hold on a sec. I'm just talking to Human Resources. I'll be with you in a second. <laughs> I'm going to get an email anytime now. Yeah, well, All no, right. there's going to be a massive lawsuit. I mean, you have offended me, Scott. Uh, look, I will take anyone calling me a sexy thing anytime, day or night, because it happens so infrequently. I think Hot Chocolate, who sang that song, was uh, had the same uh, hairstyle as you and I. I thought you were going to say he sang it for me. Um, but yes. <laughs> no, I no, believe no. I, He may have had the same hairstyle. You know, it's, hey, it is the sexy thing now. Yes, it is. That's it right. Really a lot is. of guys are got to get shaved down to the wood. Are you right down to the wood? I'm only, I'm not like at a number one. I'm not right down to the wood. No, I, I have no attachment. I just take it right off and I go right down. So it's just, you can feel it. It's like sandpaper. It's not completely smooth, yes. but it's, right. um, but you could, you could, you could, you know, work on a wall. Smooth is too head. much. Smooth is, smooth is too much work. Cause that's like shaving your head. 
And you know Let's, what happens anytime you see someone? Well, oftentimes when you see someone who does the shaving, yeah, they've got uh, all Nick. those little red nick marks in their head. <laughs> and then it just looks like you've had an acne outbreak on the side of your head. So I'll just go with the, you know, slightly, just barely there. I, you know, That is, is because most heads are not completely round. There's a the odd little contour and dent and such in you heads, know, some more you, than others. Do you realize how odd somebody would look if their head was truly round? If it was Charlie if, Brown. Yeah, I know. If Charlie you had Brown. a perfectly spherical head... There, there's probably a condition that you would have if that was the case. It's, it's not a natural thing, but, but we do. Yes, we all have. Hey, if you've ever watched Dr. Pimple Popper, you know we all have little things on our heads. I have not, but I'm Come considering on. it's close to the dinner hour. I really don't want to expand on that in any way. Uh, the Charlie Brown syndrome, a round head and a mother that goes wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's how you know you've got it. And a friend where, you know, a big pile of dust just follows him. All right, enough of that. Uh, playing this because of a leaf win. Can they make this four in a row? Because, you know, you know me and all this. I'm on and off this bandwagon so much my legs are sore. Um, but, uh, you know... Uh, I, I think they're just going to drag this out and then stab us in the heart at the very end. That's, but if they do win four in a row, I think they could win it all. Is that, is, well, is that Scott, going too I much? Think, I think if they can win 11 more games, they have a great chance at winning the Cup. <laughs> um, all right, I'll sit down and no, shut I, up. I, I, look, I, I'm... You're right that winning the next two to take it to game seven and then having a game like game two oh, of this series would be, no, would be typical. But more likely, uh, I, I don't I don't know. Like they looked great last night. They and and it's because yeah. they they were desperate. They looked like they except for the first like three or four minutes when Florida came out and you went, oh boy, are they are they not going to play? After that, they were really good. But you tell me, having watched this group of players for four, five, six years now, could you with any degree of certainty predict what you're getting one game to the next? Absolutely not. No That's idea. why we're talking. No <laughs> idea. So if they come out, like truthfully, if they come out and play like they did yesterday, yes, they really could legitimately be the fifth team ever to come all the way back from 3 nothing down and win the series. They absolutely could. They've got the talent, and you know they can do that. But I just... I, I, I've not seen them do anytime you expect the Leafs to do something or think, oh, we've cleared a hurdle now. Here we go. It's all downhill, smooth sailing. They always yeah. find something to throw into their way. So I truly, Scott, I have no, I have less than no idea what they're going to do tomorrow night. Uh, obviously, more intensity, stepped up the game, a rougher game. But, man, if you watch something like Edmonton and Vegas and see what's going on over there, you're thinking, how can the Leafs move on and face anybody that's even remotely that rough? They'll, they'll run crying, won't they? Well, it's a really interesting thing. We're going to be talking about this in the second hour of my show tonight about the playoffs. And, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, like we're looking at this and going, oh, man, this is violent. The 70s and 80s, this would have been the warm-up act. Like it was yeah. chaos. But and again, it doesn't have to be violent. It just needs to be more aggressive. I mean, you know, nobody's looking to get their heads chopped off here, but just a little bit more the on the wheel. Yeah, but the difference, Scott, is in the 70s and 80s, you also had a lot of hitting in and intensity in the regular season, a lot more. Yeah. And so the playoffs certainly were really wild, but they were an incremental increase. That Edmonton-Vegas uh, game last night, you're looking going, you don't see anything remotely like that in the regular season because mm -hmm. the league has said, we don't want that stuff in our game. But then when it happens... 
they're not consistent to say, okay, well then yeah. we're going to do something with it. You could have, Evander Kane could have been suspended three times in this series already. Yeah. Uh, the Dreisaitl hit by, uh, by Peter Angelo yesterday. I, I still haven't seen if there's any announcement on that one. That should certainly be a suspension. You could go down, I bet there's 12 guys in that series who you could have suspended already. But the problem is the NHL's Department of Player Safety, which is the biggest oxymoron of all time. It's like jumbo mm. shrimp. Like it, it makes no sense. <laughs> it is so inconsistent. Nobody knows what is going to be a penalty or what isn't. No, the players don't have any idea if they're going to be protected by the league. So what do you do? You take matters into your own hands. You police yourself because we don't trust the league is going to look after us. And then for better or for worse, you get a game like last night. Some people love it. But I think in time, you're right. You play a series or two like that, you're going to start running short on bodies. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have, uh, have a great show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one from Mr. Lowe. Thank you, Charles and Margaret Jurabinski. I can think of a great way to honor what this couple has done to benefit our community. Are you listening, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board trustees and superintendents? Charles and Margaret Jurabinski Public School. Make it happen. 